0: Good morning, Reading Family Church. Yay! Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, thanks, Sean, for the warm welcome. I'm no longer from South Africa. I've been here nine years now. So, but still, um, everything else, we've kind of assimilated into the U.K. culture, except when it comes to rugby, my heart still pumps, green and gold. So that, that's who we are. I'm so glad uh, Sean and Liz led us so well last week on the first part of uh, First Peter chapter three. I'm going to try uh, through the second half of the chapter, and that is uh, from verses 13 to 22. And um, my preach today is entitled, The Hope That Is In You. Now, I just want to give God the glory about how the Holy Spirit works. Now, I didn't talk to Dan and his band about what to sing. Or maybe I did the last song that they're going to sing. But all the others were just about the hope that we have in Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, we give you glory and praise today that you are able to connect us even when we are not together. So, I'm going to share a little anecdotal situation with us. My sister and I were at uni together, and I'm talking years ago now. You can tell from the gray in my beard. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't live at uh, at, uh, houses, as you call them, or hostels, or halls. Uh, we lived at home. We had the convenience of living at home. But one of the great things was we traveled together on the bus home. And it was like about a 45-minute ride from uni to home. And we used to always think on the day of the week uh, what we were going to have for dinner. But my mom worked as well, but there was one day of the week that she'd stay at home. And so we were used to hope on that day that, yes, we are going to get this, you know, this really top-shelf dinner. But then, my sister used to remind me, it's Thursday. Mom's going to cook beans. And it was that all you know, dry, blotty beans or something like that. And our hopes used to be shattered. But what I want to say today is that that's not the hope I'm talking about. You know, before we moved to the UK, I never realized how much of plans people make for just a weekend. I remember the first weekend I was here. I have a sister that lives in Harlow. And she actually called me. She says, said, what are you guys doing this Saturday? And I'm like, Huh? I didn't even think about it. You're asking me what are we going to do this Saturday? But then we also notice that as soon as Christmas is over, there's ads on television about the summer holidays that you can plan for. And teachers feel it at the end of the term, uh, when the school year is on the horizon. Students do that too, for that matter. And people working in retail also feel it when that season is coming to an end and they look forward to the break, Us rugby spectators also feel it when there's two minutes on the clock and we're leading by a few points and are screaming at the ref, come on, blow the whistle there. But we know for a fact, if you know the rules, that it's only going to stop when the ball goes out of play. So even on a Thursday afternoon, if you've had a pretty difficult day or a week, but you may even feel it when you sense that I'm moving towards the end of my preach as well. So... It's a feeling you get at the end of a hard season. And inside there are good things on the horizon. The summer break, the holidays, the pimps in the garden, or maybe just the roast dinner you're thinking about after this meeting. It's the hope that carries us through in the remaining hardships. It's the hope that keeps you going because you can see the end, and the end is good. You know, there's a Dr. Chan Hellman, a professor of social science at the University of Oklahoma, and he says, hope is a belief that our future can be better than our past, and that we have a role to play in making that future a reality. This positive expectation of the future is grounded in three simple elements. Goals, pathways, and willpower. But let's see what God's Word has to say. Let's read together 1 Peter 3:13 to 22. So, if you have your Bibles and you saw me carrying a paper one up here, that's for Liz. And then I also have my phone, just in case I have to look at something. All right. So, for all you people with the phones, but seriously, 1 Peter 3:13 to 22, and this is what God's Word says. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. if it should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few that his eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which also corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. It took me a good few readings to even slightly understand what Peter was trying to say here and also to stomach and accept the truths that Peter has written to the Christians in this passage. We're in deep waters, church, but there's some clarity here and uh, some help for strugglers like me. So let's pray together and hear what God has to say to us. Father, we are talking about difficult things here today, but they are difficult truths which you counted as worthy as being in your word. So help us, Father, illuminate our hearts and minds by the work of your Spirit so that we may see Jesus more clearly. We need to see him so that we can have hope and act as your people here. So help us, we pray, in the name of the risen Christ who died to bring us to you. Amen. Amen. Dr. Hellman's definition of hope, however positive or similar, is not the definition of hope that Peter is talking about the hope that Peter says is possible for us today is because of Jesus. Hope even in the midst of hardship. So let's get ready, Peter says, because we can see the end. Jesus is the victor, and we are victorious in him. Now, that might strike you as an open door uh, to to an escapism mentality. You know that ostrich mentality? For those of you who don't know what an ostrich is, is, that big bird that can't fly, and comes from southern Africa, and when it's in trouble, it sticks its head into the ground. So we say, don't have an ostrich mentality. So we don't want to have this escapist mentality. And you'd be right in a way, because Christians have taken the victory of Christ as an excuse to run away from society, to be separate on his triumph, or become triumphalism, a shallow view of his victory that pretends that everything's okay. On the flip side of triumphalism, that statement about the victory of Christ might strike you as being naive, there still remain struggles and sufferings in this life that don't seem to mesh into the truth of the victorious savior. Our circumstances can really make us ask if the truth is really the truth at all. We look at our current situation in Ukraine and ask ourselves, why do Ukrainians have to endure this, or more especially our Christian brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, in Yemen, in Myanmar, in Syria, and other parts of the world that are not currently in the news right now. But that's nothing new. The circumstances these early Christians found themselves in may have at times felt a lot more like defeat than salvation. Their circumstances told them that they were on the wrong side of life, a belief structure that was countercultural. They were powerless against the culture of power. They were vulnerable to abuse and had already suffered much just because they bore the name Christian. So even if they were able to be the new people, as Peter calls them in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, they were a suffering people. And when we suffer, it's hard to see a good ending. Now, I used to walk long distances on these challenges. And I know when your feet are hurting and your muscles are aching, it's hard to see a good ending. You, all you feel is the pain. That medal that you may get at the end, you don't see when your feet are hurting or when your muscles are aching. It's hard to see a good ending when we suffer for the sake of Christ today. A wife living with a selfish husband or vice versa because he or she believes that that's what Christ wants her to do. May, may, may see, have a hard time seeing a good ending An employee suffering with uh, the expectations and whims of a capricious boss may see the light at the end of the tunnel out of the reverence for God, but as some suspect may just be an oncoming train. You know, I'll give you a personal example. My dad came to faith when he was 19 years old. And he was disowned by his family. His granddad actually threw a brick at him when, when he told his granddad that he's now converted from Hinduism to become a Christian. He was constantly abused by his family and friends. His uncle even stopped paying his university fees as a result of it. But his testimony and God's grace saw his mom and brother come to faith many years later. What type of antagonism or rebuke do you experience as a Christian in the world today? Let's take a few seconds to consider that. I'm going to give you a few seconds to consider what type of antagonism or rebuke do you experience as a Christian in the world today. I know I've been openly challenged because I believe that the world was created by God. One person actually laughed and said, I thought you had an education and you were more intelligent than that. Uh, You taught physics and chemistry. Once, how can you accept creation? That's something so ridiculous. It doesn't look like this antagonism towards Christians is going to go away anytime soon. The chasm here in the West between Christian values and progressive secular ones is widening and not shrinking. So, what are we to do? What are we to do? No doubt we will face increasing pressure from various corners of society to get with the program and to bend our outdated views. But risking our views is not an option as Bible-believing Christians. The moment we do that, we cease to be Bible-believing Christians. So what should we do? How should we respond to the people's animosity against us simply for believing God's word and trying to live in line with it? Today's passage will help us think through this. And the question we are addressing today, what to do when we are despised for being a Christian? What can you and I do when we are despised for being a Christian? Whether it's suffering mockery from a hostile culture or just suffering waves of powerful temptation from the desires of our own hearts, when we suffer as Christians, it feels impossible to reconcile claims of a victorious Savior with the fact that his people are struggling. But the Lord helps us here. The Father helps us because he leads us back to see Jesus, to see him as our good ending, to see him as our hope, because Jesus has passed through suffering into victory. And we have the promise in him that whatever we endure here, we have been united to Christ by faith, so fully united to him that all that belongs to him is ours. His death, his life, and his victory. We are reminded in Ephesians 2, 8-10. to For by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. And not that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Resting in Christ, this thing we call faith, is what this passage is all about. And resting in Christ is what Peter calls us to do. Even when our circumstances tell us that it's not working. I know that it's a difficult thing to ask. So let me give you the good news first, so that when you hear the bad news of this passage, you'll still be savoring the good news, and the bad news won't be that bad at all. So I'm going to do the unconventional here and, go, and not go sequentially through the verses, but flip the passage around to hear what Peter says about the victorious Jesus we call the gospel. When we talk about the victory of Jesus, we talk about what we see in verse 22. We're talking about the risen Christ in heaven at the right hand of God, already ruling over all things. If what we see on the horizon is supposed to encourage us, then this is it. It is the picture of Christ as the victorious king, ruling over all things, his will being done, his people under his protection, his life in his world being as it was meant to be. Christ reigned in all his sovereignty. That's what the New Testament sees when it sees the end on the horizon. It's what we see in Revelation when God says he makes all things new in Revelation 21. It's the promise God made in Genesis 3.15. The promise of the one who would do battle against darkness. And emerge victorious. Fully and finally accomplished. He shall bruise your head. And you, shall, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the reality just on the horizon. Our hope in Jesus as our king can keep us going. But in the language of verse 22... The kingship of Jesus is a reality that has already broken into our lives. It all speaks of a present and continuing reality. It silently slipped into our world in the incarnation of Christ. But then the victory of Christ was loudly proclaimed. We often rightly think that the resurrection was the arrival of the victory of Christ. But there is also a sense of when the moment when it was won was like the moment it was lost. It seems like a lost cause in the suffering of Jesus on the cross. That's what Peter wants us to understand in verse 18. We need to see the victory of Jesus came through suffering. Suffering that he endured for our sake. For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. This is the heart of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It is the good news that there is a God who knows. He loves broken, rebellious people. It's the good news that God does not expect you to get it together so that you can find him because he himself came to us in the person of Jesus to deal with our failures and our weaknesses and our outright rebellion. Jesus came and stood in our place and suffered the painful death on the cross. I only found out while doing the the, the preparation for for this preach that the word excruciating is derived from the word crucifixion and the pain and suffering of Jesus. We use that word so loosely these days. Oh, I have such excruciating pain. I mean, I don't think you can even understand what our Savior went on, on, on the cross and what he bore for our sins. The eternal God suffered the weight of our infinite offenses against him for one singular purpose, that he might bring us to God, that he might reconcile us to the Father. God endured unjust suffering to win us to himself. Yes, his death was the beginning of his victory. Yes, his suffering was the way that he would take up his reign over all things. But he did not enter into victory through his, without his people without you who would hear the good news and rest in it as your only hope through suffering jesus claimed the victory and claimed the object of the desire uh, the object of his desire at the same time which is you and me that is the hope that is supposed to keep us going jesus is our king who died to win us for himself and in his victory we belong to him no matter what circumstances tell us otherwise. Christ also suffered being put to death in flesh but made alive in the spirit which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison because the formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared and in which a few that eight persons were brought safely through water. Now you know at the beginning I said that um, I had to read it a good few times. This passage here was uh, really, the passage that really got me to, what is, what, what is Peter actually saying? Interpreters of scripture and biblical scholars have offered several possible understandings of what Peter is saying here. Most agree that this is talking about Jesus's work between his death and resurrection, which would make this the only place in scripture so far as uh, I know anyhow, that speaks to what happened during the days when Jesus's body lay in the tomb Ever wondered what happened during this time? We know that the disciples and other followers of Jesus were totally destroyed, totally distraught, without any hope. They were scared, anxious, fearful of their lives, perhaps with no hope for the future. There are two possible readings which I think stand up to criticism. One understands the spirits in prison of Noah's day to mean the human beings who rejected Yahweh and even ignored Noah who... Passed on God's message to repent uh, during the flood and in 2 Peter 2.5 it says, if he did not spare the ancient world, he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. The other understands the spirit of prisons of Noah's day to mean the, the spiritual beings or the fallen angels whose rebellion of God resulted in them being cast into hell and committed to the chains of a gloomy darkness. There are good arguments for both meanings. But where they differ on who the audience of Christ's proclamation may have been, they absolutely agree on one thing, and that is the message. Although Christ was in the midst of his own humiliation, having just suffered and died and his body lying alone in the tomb, even so, Jesus was alive in the spirit, right to proclaim his victory over every power that had come against him. God's purpose to sit Christ on the throne in his fulfillment of his his promised victory was not only unhindered by Christ's suffering, but was fulfilled by Christ's suffering. And so our Savior descended into the place of enemies, telling them that a new reality was coming. He had become the victor. You know, in simple terms, Jesus delivers a spoiler alert to Satan and all his followers. And he's saying, I am going to conquer death in a couple of days, boys. So what you thought as a winning battle? No, no winning battle, because Christ has won the war. In simple terms, Satan and his followers' victory party is short-lived when our Savior conquered death. Christ had become the victor, and in doing so, rescued his people. The same act of God that sealed the fate of the enemies also sealed the safety of the people of God. Think about what Peter is saying here at the end of verse 20. He sees Noah's flood, the the pattern of the salvation. The same waters that came up in judgment against the rebellious humanity was the same waters that lifted Noah and his family to safety. They were brought safely through the water. In the same way Peter says the death of Christ was judgment against the enemies of God. But at the same time, it was God's meaning of rescuing his people. We have been brought safely through death into life by the death of Christ. And that is why he can say in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. As we come to God with our need, a need for removal of guilt, and a need for him to enable us to stand before him unafraid, we come to God expressing our need of Christ. Because he says yes. Because Christ, who died for our sins, rose again from the dead and reigns victorious. And with our faith and hope in him, we know we too will be raised. Even though we suffer today, we don't have to be troubled or afraid of what we are utterly lost, that we are utterly lost since we have been united with Christ. In Christ, our sins have been dealt with, in Christ, we have passed through death into life with him. That is the reality for us today as we come to him. And we come to him by faith. And as we look to Jesus, we see on the horizon the coming fullness of his victory. So baptism isn't mere, about mere water. It is about a union with Christ by faith and all his benefits that belong to us in him. And I want to encourage you today, if you haven't been baptized Talk to Scott, who's here at the front. There's a baptism. uh, We're holding baptisms over the Easter weekend. will be a great opportunity for you to publicly show your union that you have with Christ. And the victory of Jesus isn't some momentary truth meant to distract us from today in some pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by sort of way. The victory of Jesus is a powerful, present reality meant to transform the way you and I live in. It is meant to be the greater hope that dominates over the greater fears of life because the rule of Jesus is the one sure constant in an ever-changing and uncertain world. We have come through a pandemic and are coming out of it. I know that many of us have been through difficult times during the pandemic. Many of us have have lost loved ones. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us have contracted covid during the time when there was no vaccine and people were dying by the hundreds daily. But we can truly say that as a church, although experiencing difficulties and challenges and fears during early lockdown, we have come through having a greater hope that dominates over every fear of this life because Jesus rules and reigns. My real example was seeing Vanessa severely ill during those weeks in March 2020 the worry of if she would make it considering all we were seeing on the news. I'm sure Joshny and Liz went through similar situations with A.B. and Sean and so many others that I don't know about. But we can say that our only hope against the greater fear was that in spite of what we were experiencing, Jesus still ruled and reigned. Jesus still rules and reigns. And I know... I was worried, although I was worshipping, but Jesus still rules and reigns. And that's how Peter applies this passage. The whole focus on the victory of Christ is the foundation supporting verses 13 to 17. Peter writes in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good or for what is good? He just finished a long section, insisting that those who set their hope in Christ are called to follow him by enduring suffering while doing good to others. Even those who cause the suffering. There is possibility that, that in the pursuit of good. Can if God wills to bring an end to suffering. If evil is meant for good. Then evil may end. Even Albert Einstein stated once. The world will not be destroyed by those who do evil. But those who watch them without doing any good. But Peter isn't naive. He's a realist. He goes on to say in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Knowing the reality of their circumstances, Peter understands that suffering produces fear in us. But the antidote for our fear is Jesus. To rest in his victory is to displace all other fears with the hope in him. He says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make the defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, I have a healthy fear of cats. They are unpredictable creatures. One second you can be petting them and... They'll be purring up total satisfaction. And then in a storm, they like stick their claws into you. But there are cats. And then there are cats. <laughs> I mean big cats. Now, I come from Africa. So you get lion, cheetah, leopard. They make... That's India. But, anyway, <laughs> but those are big cats anyway, David. They well, will most look at you as eat your face up. That's how they are. They don't think about going putting your arm around one of those big cats. Now, I can tell you that my fear of big cats makes my healthy fear of house cats look like no fear at all. That's the sort of what it means to regard Christ the Lord as holy. It means we count his lordship His authority over all things as the most powerful that any fearful thing we can face. It means we keep Him in His proper place in our hearts on the throne. In the gospel, we've seen His power on display. How He brought us to God through His own suffering. How He proclaimed His victory over His enemies. Even turning their own to accomplish His purposes. So when we are confronted with other fearful and troubling circumstances we can keep them in their proper place too. They must ultimately serve the will of the one who reigns over all. And that means they must ultimately serve us too, no matter how fearsome they look today. So there it is, deep waters, right? I know, I feel like I'm in over my head. When we suffer here, we have every reason for hope. We have a hope because Jesus remains Lord We have a hope because he has brought us to God through his death and resurrection. By faith in him, we have been united to him so that we have entered into his victory both now and in the age to come. And as you and I keep coming back to this truth, especially in the times when our circumstances tell us otherwise, we we keep coming back to the good news and it leads us to endure in the face of suffering. There may be some of you who see it and ask, why do you have this hope right now? It might be a co-worker. It might be a spouse. It might be a stranger. Or is it, or as it is, was possibly the case of Peter's friends, it might be someone who has the power to even kill you. Based on your answer. This is the circumstances facing some of our brothers and sisters, even today, around the world. But whoever asks for that reason, for the hope that is in you, your answer begins with a single word and that is Jesus. And expands from a promise in the garden to the cross of Christ and goes on through the story to the arrival of the kingdom of God in its fullness on the day when the victory of Christ is complete. But as you give the answer Peter doesn't allow us to use Christ as a, Christ's victory as a bludgeon. So let's be careful. It talks about doing it respectfully, with care, with consideration. Absolutely, we can tell people that Christ is our hope and his death and resurrection and current reign is the reason why we don't have to be afraid. Scores and scores of believers throughout time have done that in the face of unimaginable threats, unimaginable to us maybe. Even though Martin Luther didn't understand everything about the text, he knew enough that Christ and his victory To withstand the death threats of those who would want to silence him. No, Peter reminds us we must give our answer with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. My dad's experience again is yet another example. Because before he came to faith at 19, he was a diehard communist. And the day he got saved was the day he decided to go into a church service and disrupt it. But the calm and gentle response from the speaker to his heckling was used by the Holy Spirit to convict my dad who then came to faith. My dad then went on to be a pioneering pastor in the sphere of churches that I grew up in. That day actually was a game changer for my dad and his life. Such a response can silence the very accusations that come against Christians that we are proud and self-righteous. If we are those things which we are sometimes, then we ought to repent and run very quickly back to Jesus, remembering that we have to answer with gentleness and respect because the truth of the matter is that we don't deserve this hope. And yet Christ came and suffered for sinners to bring us to God. He is gentle with us. We have to be gentle with others too. Some of us are being called to walk down incredibly difficult paths now. Some of us are at the mercy of unmerciful people. Some of us face fears that few others will ever know. It may be a debilitating illness. It could be heartbreak. It may be being let down by someone. It could be unemployment. But even though I myself may understand some of the strengths of those fears, I can only point this word telling you that the end is in sight. I don't know if the end will come in this life or if we'll have to wait for this life to come to an end for us to find rest. But this word promises us that the end is in sight. It's just on the horizon. And what we see isn't just a finish line or a place. We see a person. We see Jesus. And seeing him in his victory is what can give us strength and hope to endure today. In 1865, Margaret Wilson, a young Scottish girl of 18 years old, was arrested for her faith along with a 63 year old Margaret McLaughlin. They were both asked to recant their faith against Jesus and they were put out into the ocean so that tied to a post so that the tide could overcome them and they'd be killed. And they put the older woman in front of the younger girl so that they could convince her to recant. And, and to give up her faith in Christ. But she stood as she watched her older sister in Christ suffer at the pangs of the salt water into her lungs and die. And they said, ask this young lady, why don't you recant? Why don't you give up your faith? And she says, because I see Jesus in suffering in my sister in front of me. And she said, by, by quoting the 25th Psalm, she says, remember not the sins of my youth, All my transgressions, according to your steadfast love, Lord, remember me for your sake and for your goodness. And she picked up, they pulled her head up above the water one last time and said, come on, you know, there's an opportunity for you here. And she said this, I will not. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. And she was thrust down into the water to finish the course of her her earthly life. Peter tells us in verse 17 that it may very well be the will of God for us to walk through these sufferings. But to walk through them does not need to hold fear for us, because God is at work in them, conforming our lives to the pattern of Jesus' own life. He suffered the glorious victory which followed. By faith we are in him, and he is in us, so we have the assurance of God that he suffers with us now, and we can live in victory. You know, there's a reason why I brought my phone along too. And I just want to read um, from the Message Bible. And the the last passage of Scripture, on verse 22, it says, Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone. From angels to armies, he's standing right alongside God. And what he says... Goes, And I want you to remember that today. Jesus has the last word on everything. No matter what you are facing today, Jesus has the last word on everything. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior right now, if he doesn't live in your heart, there's an opportunity for you. Come talk to me or Sean or Scott at the end of the meeting. And we can share the hope, the hope that I have the hope that all of us have here. And that is the hope in Jesus because Jesus has the last word. And I just want to finish and declare this verse over you from, 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 from 1 Peter 5. And it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to be the dominion forever and ever.